Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host, Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. Um, I'm okay. I spent today planning my trip to Paris in a couple of weeks, which was a very, very uplifting way to spend the day. I mean, I didn't spend the whole day, unfortunately. <laughs> I also had to work, but, but that was the bit of the day I was the most interested in. Yeah, well, as you know, I just came back from Paris and I... I am not exaggerating when I say that I think I felt joy for the first time in two years. It was amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, You're going to have the best time. I can't wait. And I'm seeing a couple of really old friends and we're just going to have some amazing dinners. I'm going to go see that Georgia O'Keeffe. I'm going to go see something at the Fondation Louis Vuitton. I'm going to go to the Palais de Tokyo. I'm just, yeah, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to walk around the city by myself and like, read a book and drink a coffee and write in my notebook. Thrilled for you. Like I'm 18, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? How are you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm back from Paris and on a high. I had a great time, but I also bought a new pair of boots. Mm, love boots. And I realized I have been wearing the same pair of boots since 2018. I mean, there was big hiatus from them during the pandemic, but I really didn't buy any clothes during the pandemic, which I was feeling kind of smug and proud about. But actually, it felt really great to buy these boots, and I've been loving wearing them. And it turns out maybe I do like consumerism. So, Clothes are great. Fashion is a beautiful way to express yourself. Yeah, that's what my therapist says. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like your therapist. She's good. Um, I, um, I just bought and I have no idea if it's going to be a good purchase or a bad purchase, a bright green coat with furry collar and cuffs today online. And if it works out well, it's going to be very glamorous. And if it works out badly, I'm going to look like Kermit the Frog. Mm. So jury's out, listeners. We'll let you know how we get on next time. (laughs) Okay, on to the show. Today, we're excited to welcome the author Ruth Ezeki whose latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is about a boy named Benny who loses his father, and shortly thereafter begins to hear the objects around him speak. One of the objects that speaks to Benny throughout the novel is the novel itself, which muses on what it means to tell a story and how books think and feel. This conceit got us thinking about other books that are about books. So today on the show, we'll be digging further into that idea, looking at all the ways that literature can be about itself, from books set in libraries to stories about writers to metafictional texts that are about their own means of creation. We'll be asking what some of the joys and the pitfalls of this kind of self-referentiality can be. Plus, I might be uh, dusting off some of my old grad school essays. Just kidding. I shudder even thinking about (laughs) rereading those, but I did love to write essays that were about books about books. Good topic. It is a good topic, and we're going to talk about it more. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Ruth Octavia? I sure can. Ruth Ozeki is an award-winning novelist and filmmaker. Her third novel, A Tale for the Time Being, won the 2013 Independent Booksellers Book Award and the Kitschies Red Tentacle Award, and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize 2013 and the National Book Critics Award for Fiction. She's also the author of My Year of Meats and All Over Creation. Ozeki was born and raised in Connecticut by an American father and a Japanese mother. In June 2010, she was ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest. She divides her time between British Columbia and New York. 
Also, quick reminder that we're on Patreon. If you would like to support the work that we do and get extra content every month, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, thank you. But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Ruth Azeki, a more general discussion of books about books, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So book yourself into the hotel of literary friction. Wow, that was terrible. I forgot. I was going to go so back bad. to that, and I forgot. No, so bad. <laughs> it's not so even bad. self-referential. It's, it's just It's, it's just, just bad. Ruth Azeki, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. So we've asked you to start with a reading from the book of Form and Emptiness. Do you mind setting it up? Um, not at all. Not at all. Um, I thought I would uh, read a little bit from the beginning, and um, I'm going to read two sections, which I'm hoping will give you a sense of the two primary voices in the book. The book is kind of set up as a as a conversation between the book's protagonist, a young boy named Benny O, and his book. So it's actually the book that's doing the narration. So here we go. In the beginning, a book must start somewhere. One brave letter must volunteer to go first, laying itself on the line in an act of faith from which a word takes heart and follows, drawing a sentence into its wake. From there, a paragraph amasses, and soon a page, and the book is on its way, finding a voice, calling itself into being. A book must start somewhere, and this one starts here. A boy. Shh, listen. That's my book, and it's talking to you. Can you hear it? It's okay if you can't, though. It's not your fault. Things speak all the time, but if your ears aren't attuned, you have to learn to listen. You can start by using your eyes, because eyes are easy. Look at all the things around you. What do you see? A book, obviously, and obviously the book is speaking to you, so try something more challenging. The chair you're sitting on, the pencil in your pocket, the sneaker on your foot. Still can't hear? Then get down on your knees and put your head to the seat, or take off your shoe and hold it to your ear. No. Wait, if there are people around, they'll think you're mad, so try it with the pencil first. Pencils have stories inside them, and they're safe as long as you don't stick the point in your ear. Just hold it next to your head and listen. Can you hear the wood whisper? The ghost of the pine? The mutter of lead? Sometimes it's more than one voice. Sometimes it's a whole chorus of voices rising from a single thing, especially if it's a made thing with lots of different makers. But don't be scared. I think it depends on the kind of day they were having back in Guangdong or Laos or wherever. And if it was a good day at the old sweatshop, if they were enjoying a pleasant thought at the moment when that particular grommet came tumbling down the line and passed through their fingers, then that pleasant thought will cling to the whole. Sometimes it's not so much a thought as a feeling, a nice warm feeling, like love, for example, sunny and yellow. But when it's a sad feeling or an angry one that gets laced into your shoe, then you better watch out because that shoe might do crazy shit, like marching your feet right up to the front of the Nike store, for example, where you could wind up smashing the display window with a baseball bat made of furious wood. If that happens, it's still not your fault. Just apologize to the window 
Say I'm sorry to the glass, and whatever you do, don't try to explain. The arresting officer doesn't care about the crappy conditions in the bat factory. He won't care about the chainsaws or the sturdy ash tree that the bat used to be, so just keep your mouth shut. Stay calm. Be polite. Remember to breathe. It's really important not to get upset, because then the voices will get the upper hand and take over your mind. Things are needy. They take up space. They want attention, and they'll drive you mad if you let them. So just remember, you're like the air traffic controller. No, wait, you're like the leader of a big brass band made up of all the jazzy stuff of the planet, and you're floating out there in space, standing on this great garbage heap of a world with your hair slicked back and your natty suit and your stick up in the air, surrounded by all the eager things. And for one quick, beautiful moment, all their voices go silent, waiting till you bring your baton down. Music or madness? It's totally up to you. Thank you, Ruth. And I'm really glad that you you chose to read those two excerpts because the first thing I wanted to ask you about was, was actually that choice to not only be telling the story of Benny and really his mother, Annabelle, after his father dies, but have the book itself speaking. What, what, why did you want that to be part of this story? I wish I could say that I planned that. Unfortunately, I didn't. It was kind of an accident. I've had this problem ever since I started writing novels with the omniscient third-person voice. And we all know that real novelists write in the third-person omniscient. That's how real novels should be written. At least that's what I grew up believing. And so I thought, you know, I really need to master this. All of my other novels have all been written in partially in the first person, um, in the kind of limited third person, sometimes even in the second person, but I've never managed to pull off the omniscient third. So this was the book where I was going to do it. And, <laughs> and I set out, I set out trying to do this and, and it was going fine. I was doing great. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 pages in, Benny starts talking back. He starts talking back in the first person and complaining about the way the narration's going and complaining that the book isn't telling the story right. And then before I knew it, the book was kind of answering him. And so this dialogue started between the two of them. And I realized that once again, this voice that I thought was the omniscient third, in fact, wasn't. It was the voice of the book itself talking back to Benny. And that, in effect, the two of them were kind of arguing and co-creating each other. And it occurred to me then, you know, I knew that this was going to be a book about a boy who heard the voices of objects, of things, talking to him. I knew that right from the start. But it just hadn't occurred to me that the book was an object that he was going to be talking to. So when this dialogue started up and I, and I realized what was going on, it was like one of those moments where I kind of slapped myself in, on the forehead because it, it just seemed so obvious. The book is an object and Benny is talking to it and Benny is listening to it. And so that's really how, how that narrative voice came into being. I wish I could say that I'd planned it from the beginning, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I found this element where... Benny's relating to inanimate objects, you know, he hears their voices and he's in dialogue with them. Incredibly relatable, actually, because when I was a child, I used to talk to inanimate objects all the time and I had a relationship with them. And I, I don't hear voices in the way he does, but I still 
feel like I have a, a, an understanding of whether a cup or a plate wants to be used over the other ones or a knife or a fork prefers me or my partner or, you know, and so I felt very seen That's by this great. book. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, but I, I wanted to know what drew you to that kind of phenomenon because Carrie and I both noticed that in, in the acknowledgements, you write that you spoke to a number of experts about the phenomenon of hearing voices. And it seems like you went in in a kind of um, research capacity before writing about this experience of this character. So did it feel very important to you to take that very seriously and to get it oh, right? Yes, it, it did. I have friends who do hear voices, and so this is something I've known about and have engaged with for quite a while. Um, also friends who are involved in, you know, the hearing voices community. But this idea of, you know, hearing inanimate objects speaking, you know, even if you don't understand them, you have a sense, even if they're not, you know, these objects aren't speaking in, in a language that you understand, having exactly that sense that you describe, that the object has some kind of preference or volition that it sparks a kind of feeling in me. I think children do this all the time, but I also have that feeling. I mean, like Benny, I have a spoon that I prefer over all the other spoons. The sense of being attached to one object over the other is certainly something that I've always understood and felt, I don't know, sort of close to somehow. I think also at the heart of this book, there's a kind of Zen question, a Zen parable or a koan, a little puzzle. And um, it takes the form of a question, do insentient beings speak the Dharma? In other words, do insentient beings have the capacity to teach us about the world and about life and about reality? This was also something that I was thinking about as I was writing this book. And the book is kind of a, a response to that question. And my sense is that, yes, I think they do. I think insentient beings can teach us an awful lot about the world that we live in. That really comes across. And getting back to the idea of a book as object, I think you think a lot in this book about what books in particular, what makes them almost sort of more special than other objects because of what they can do. And, and they themselves, within this book, the novel kind of tells us why books are important and what they can do and how they think and how they feel. I think you're a perfect author for that, not just because this is a book about books, but your last novel, A Tale for the Time Being, also had some elements of metafiction. So I wonder, do you think you're drawn to writing about books and what they do in your work? And do you ever worry that it will get tangled up in its own self-referentiality? Like, what's your relationship with that kind of storytelling? I confess, I do love spatial relationship of metafiction. I love this sense of, you know, books within books, plays within plays. There's a French term for this, the mise en abîme. And it's a, I, I think it's beautiful. It's a kind of a recursive structure and it implies a kind of infinitude. It's like the picture within a picture. And it implies a kind of infinitude that goes beyond the particular work that you're reading or making at the time. It's a kind of recursive relationship that sort of extends backwards and forwards outside the object itself. And there's something about that that's really appealing to me. When I, I track back to where I first started thinking about that, I can see it in my, when I was in college, I just, I, and, and studying Shakespeare, I, you know, that was the aspect of Shakespeare plays that, you know, that appealed to me. It just kind of thrilled me. But it also goes back to my childhood. I remember a book called, I don't know whether this is, it was 
popular in the UK. It was called Harold and the Purple Crayon. Well, I'm from I'm from America, really? so I but yes, okay, I know it well. Right. Octavia, do you know it? No, I've not heard of it. Oh, I, I oh love crayons, so I'm, I'm ready. I'm <laughs> it's into wonderful. it. <laughs> it's a wonderful book about a little boy who has a purple crayon, and the book is basically Harold drawing his world with the purple crayon. And so anything that happens in the book is happening because Harold is drawing it in the moment that you're actually kind of turning the pages and reading it. And so it has this sense, again, of a kind of focus on the practice itself, you know, as kind of a self-referentiality that, I don't know, I mean, it, it, it thrilled me when I was a kid and it continues to sort of thrill me now. I think also one of the books that throws up questions about this that is inside this book is called Tidy Magic, The Ancient Zen Art of Clearing Your Clutter and Revolutionizing Your Life. And the minute I came across that in your book, I I was itching to talk to you about it. Because in this conversation, when we think about the way that objects refer inside and outside of the story, and if we kind of consider that objects have a form of sentience and that Benny can listen to them and talk to them, then the question of decluttering takes on a totally different kind of meaning, doesn't it? Yeah. You're a Zen Buddhist priest as well as an author. So the Zen strand that runs through this book feels very significant and how it relates to this idea of decluttering and, and for your characters as well. And I'd just love to hear you talk about that. Like, why did you want to fold that into this story? Sure. I think there were probably several reasons behind that. One is that so much of what I write about comes from some kind of personal experience. For example, after my dad died, I had this experience for about a year after he died of hearing his voice speaking to me. And it was always behind me. He, I would hear him clear his throat and say my name. And I'd turn around and look and he wouldn't be there. And so this is an experience I gave to Benny. Um, but another experience that I had after both my parents died, I was cleaning out their house. And I'm an only child and, and my parents were raised during the Depression. And so they were very thrifty and they saved everything. The house was filled with these objects. Many of them uh, were from Japan, from my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and some of them I knew about, but many of the objects that were in the house, I didn't know you know, sort of where they came from. I didn't know about their provenance. I could sense that the objects contained many, many stories. And I remember wishing that the objects would speak to me, but of course they didn't. Um, And so this idea of trying to find new homes for objects, trying to clear your clutter, trying to kind of get rid of things, move things into their next life was something that I'd been preoccupied with. And so when Marie Kondo kind of burst onto the scene and, and started a kind of clutter clearing revolution. I was kind of thrilled and also amused by that because the kinds of things that she was suggesting that we do were things that were kind of built into traditional Japanese relationships with objects. So this idea that, you know, if an object has served you well, that you wouldn't just toss it into the garbage, you would kind of take a moment to appreciate it before you threw it away. This seemed kind of like common sense in Japan, but I think struck people as being quite novel in the West. Yeah. I want to ask you more about Zen Buddhism because it's a big element of this book and it's a big element of your life. So I guess first for our listeners, I wonder if you could just briefly explain the the tenets of Zen Buddhism for anyone who doesn't know. And maybe that's a really big question. (laughs) 
Wow. That's, yeah, that's a really big question. That's a really big question. I don't know how to answer that. Well, I mean, the word Zen itself, a kind of Japanese pronunciation of a word that means meditation. And so that is the main practice of Zen Buddhism, this practice of sitting Zazen. It, it's hard to sort of sum up the, the main tenets of Buddhism, but I would say that certainly one of them is the understanding that everything in this world is impermanent, which seems, of course, kind of obvious, right? Everything in this world has a best before date and everything dies or it, it breaks down. But it's just that this is understood in a particular way in Buddhism. And it's certainly something that is understood to be the cause of the kind of attachment and suffering that we experience. In many ways, this is very much at the heart of Buddhism, but it's also at the heart of any story that we might run across in literature, that things are impermanent, that we suffer as a result of this impermanence, and that we strive to come to terms with this suffering in, in one way or another. And, and I would say that that's very much what Benny and Annabelle in this book are trying to do. How do you see your writing in connection with your practice? Um, because obviously there's a lot of Zen in this book, but I wonder how you think about it more more expansively in terms of writing. You know, how do the two things relate to each other? And do you think they're ever at odds with each other, writing and Zen? Well, they're they're different, but I think they come from a similar place, which is, I think at the heart of every writing project I have, there's some kind of question that drives me to want to write a book. And I think that's also the case with Buddhism. I think that I, I started practicing Zen because, well, I, it was it was really because, you know, my parents were getting old and um, I realized in that way that one does all of a sudden, like, oh, they're really going to die and it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And the reality of this the kind of starkness and force of that reality just really kind of hit me hard. But, you know, in terms of the relationship between writing and Buddhist practice, I mean, I think I used to feel more like they might, like they were kind of at odds with each other. And certainly in Buddhism, there's a lot of sort of skepticism about representation, literary representation. But I think the more that I practice in both of these ways, the less contradiction I feel there is. And in a way, when I'm writing too, and I think this is probably something that's happening more recently, but when I'm writing, I very often try to, to write in a way that is very open. In other words, I'm not plot things out in advance. It's a kind of an open inquiry, a kind of watching to see where my mind goes and to see where the story will take me, which is very much akin to what happens when I'm meditating. It's not like I'm meditating with some kind of object in mind. It's more a kind of relaxing into the moment itself and seeing what happens, just experiencing whatever it is that arises. And I think my writing has become more like that as well. That makes a lot of sense in the way that this book is written, because it really feels to me as the reader, like the voices kind of 
arose to you. I don't know. I feel like that really comes across. And I wanted to ask you about the voices of the different characters, because I mean, listening to you talk about that kind of the realization of parental loss and and the, the loss that happens when a parent dies is obviously cataclysmic. And you have this young teenage boy in this novel who experiences the loss of his father right at the beginning. And I wondered how you got into the frame of mind to write as a teenage boy about those huge feelings. It's funny because in my previous novel, A Tale for the Time Being, I was writing in the voice of a teenage girl right now, Yasutani. And in this case, you know, the Benny's voice is certainly a, a major part of the book and the, the dialogue that's occurring between Benny and his book. And yet I can't really tell you where that comes from. It's not like I'm trying to write in the voice of a teenage boy. I've never been a teenage boy. I mean, I've been a teenager, but I'm not exactly sure where where that voice comes from. But that's how characters come to me. They come to me as voices. You know, I mean, they're internal voices. I'm hearing them kind of inside my head with my mind. Voices like Benny's voice or Nao's voice, they're very clear. And I hear them speaking and I, I write them down. And I really can't explain it sort of more than that. It just... It's just there. You know, a character we haven't really talked about too much yet is Annabelle, his mother, but she plays a huge role in this book. And um, and I think she's such an interesting character too. And I wonder what drew you to her voice? Like what, what interested you about Annabelle and what did you want to kind of figure out about her and who she was? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because Annabelle is probably the character I struggled with the most. And I think that's because I feel close to her. You know, as I said before, I don't really feel close to Benny in that kind of autofiction way. Benny just felt like a he was a character. He was really clear to me. He just kind of happened on the page. Annabelle, on the other hand, you know, I did feel close to. And there's something about the flavor of her suffering, the way that she experiences loss, the way that she interacts with the material world, her kind of relentless, almost hapless optimism. She tries so hard. And then too, the way that she sees the promise, the kind of vitality in the material world is, is something too that I, I just really kind of relate to. So Annabelle has this thing that she does. She goes to, you know, these big arts and crafts superstores and, and just wanders up and down the aisles and all of the art materials and stuff that she sees, she just senses their promise, what they could become. And this is almost overwhelming to her. And I have that same reaction when I walk into stationery stores. Like I walk along the aisles and look at all of the pens and I have to kind of touch them and I have to sort of feel the paper. And there's a sense of imminence there, you know, that these are things just waiting to become. And so that's something I also feel very, you know, I feel like, like I understand Annabelle and I kind of pity her in, in a way. So I think that because I felt sort of close to Annabelle in that way, it, you know, with her kind of attachment to things. It was harder for me to write her voice because I think that she doesn't speak directly in the book. The book narrates Annabelle's passages. And it took a while for me to find a way for the book to talk about Annabelle that had enough compassion. I think that the book was, was a little bit harsh on Annabelle 
you know, and a little bit ironic, too ironic at first. And so it took a while for the book to understand or for me to understand how the book could speak about Annabelle in a way that was open and compassionate. Because I think we're always hardest on the characters who are most like ourselves. It's hard to feel that kind of compassion for somebody who's like you. Do you think writing that relationship taught you anything new? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, being aware of the the sort of cruel irony that the book often used in relationship, you know, when describing Annabelle, really taught me something about the way that I use that same kind of cruel irony when I've done something stupid. I have an inner voice, the voice of my inner critic, you know, <laughs> that that is not shy about telling me that and usually tells me that in some way that is, yeah, that that's harsh and ironic. It's like, oh, good one. There's this kind of snide tone. And it was that same kind of ironic snide tone that the book had from time to time. And I worked very, very hard to get rid of that. So again, it was, I think, a kind of recognition of how harsh I can be towards myself. And that was kind of mirrored at first in the relationship between the book as narrator and the character. So that was an interesting parallel. And I think too, you know, it was only after I was able to just soften that. And, you know, it was only after I was able to find a kind of a compassion for Annabelle that Benny was able to do the same thing. Mm. I actually, ha it's so, you keep saying compassion. It's so interesting because I, in my questions, I had written down a question about compassion because your writing feels very compassionate to me. Is that something you strive for in kind of every sentence that you're writing? You know, are you always thinking about compassion? Do you think a book has to be compassionate? No, absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't really, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the truth is that I'm not really striving for anything when I'm writing. I'm striving to get another page written. It's not like I have a, an agenda, something that I'm trying to communicate. The writing doesn't come from that place. It comes from some other place. It's really just trying to follow the characters and see what they can do. The editing is different. Now, the editing process that I'm talking about is, is that process of adjusting the tone, adjusting the tone and, and kind of tightening things. And, um, and in, in that case, there's a kind of technical aspect. But even then, I wouldn't say it's like trying to find compassion. That Those are words that I would use after the fact when I try to kind of analyze it from the outside and talk about the book kind of from the outside. But when I'm actually in the process of writing it from the inside, I'm not thinking about those things at all. And it's interesting too, because, you know, I mean, the person who wrote this book is no longer here. You know, I'm talking to you. I'm, you know, ostensibly the author of this book, but I'm not necessarily the writer of it. The writer of it kind of did her work, finished her work about a year ago. And so now I'm kind of the author of the book. So I talk about it in this way, kind of from the outside. I'm like the PR branch of the organization, <laughs> yeah. right? you know, where, you know, and I'm, you know, I kind of talk about it as if I knew this all the time, but no, no, it, it didn't feel that way at all. When I was writing it, I was just writing it. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is, is style, which is, is related of course, but I've seen a lot of things written about your fiction saying it's very readable. And I agree, it is very readable. And I, I don't think that's an insult. You know, I don't think literature has to be difficult to read to be good. And in fact, it's often better when it is when it is readable. And I just, I wanted to know about your process in that sense. Do you work really hard in the editing 
to make the text readable in that way? Or is that something that you think kind of comes naturally to you on a sentence by sentence level? What's the process like? Yeah, that's a good question because I'm not quite sure what readable means. I try to make each sentence beautiful. I try to make each sentence sound nice when read out loud. I read every sentence out loud to myself several times, you know, so I've read the book many times out loud to myself. But, you know, I come from a television background. So I used to make very watchable television. And so there is a part of me that thinks that I want to write books that young people will enjoy reading. In other words, they need to be readable, but that contain ideas that are complex and layered. And so I think if I have an overall strategy of any kind, it's that. It's to make something with a forward-moving plot and relationships between the characters that compel a reader to read, you know, and to turn the pages, right, to want to kind of dive in, but that also sort of stay with you upon reflection and ask bigger questions than simply what happens next. Well, I think that it wraps it up really well. So Ruth Azeki, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. The book is called The Book of Form and Emptiness, and it is published and you can buy it in all good bookshops. This episode is sponsored by Picador. It's somewhat hard to believe, but it's been nearly two years since our lives were changed by the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is hard to believe. Yeah, and it's wild. Wild. <laughs> And whilst many of us have spent our time in and out of quarantine, finding escapism wherever we can, some authors have turned to their writing as a way to explore the realities of the pandemic experience. For some readers, as the pandemic lumbers on, it's a little too close to home to read about lockdown in stories. But there are a few writers whose take on the new world we just wouldn't want to miss. Sarah Moss, Sunday Times bestselling author of Ghost Wall and Summer Water, is one of them. Moss's new novel, The Fell, is truly a novel for our times, a tense thriller that tells the story of a woman in quarantine who just can't take it anymore. On a November evening in 2020, a woman slips out of her garden gate and turns up the hill. Kate is in the middle of a two-week quarantine period, but she feels like she's losing her mind. The closeness of the air in her small house, the confinement. And anyway, the more will be deserted at this time. Nobody need ever know. But Kate's neighbor sees her leaving, and Kate's son soon realizes she's missing. And Kate's who planned only a quick solitary walk, a breath of open air, falls and badly injures herself. What began as a furtive walk has turned into a mountain rescue operation. Unbearably suspenseful, witty and also wise, the fell asks probing questions about how the world has changed since March 2020 and the place it was before. Emma Donoghue said about the fell, it is a tense page turner, I gulped it down in one sitting. The fell by Sarah Moss is available at your local independent bookshop.
This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about our wider theme. Today, we are going meta, baby. We are going to be discussing books about books. So this is obviously a category that can encompass so many different kinds of books, from nonfiction books about the history of literature to metafictional narratives that explore novels on creation to books about writers, books set in libraries. So I actually wanted to start with novels, and also I thought we could start by setting out where we stand on books about books. So, Octavia, do you like reading novels that are about books? I do. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. I really do. I think they're great. I mean, Ruth talked in our interview, and actually her, her recommendation was Jorge Luis Borges, who was not a writer of novels so much as short stories, but he's probably one of my favorite fiction writers who just loves to write books about, or loves to write about stories and storytelling and the process of stories and the way that stories speak to one another. His work is just delightfully intertextual. And I think largely the reason it's so thrilling is because he was just extraordinarily well-read and he spoke multiple languages. So the breadth of his reading was vast, basically. And he was such an extraordinary brain. But then I also have enjoyed a much lighter than Borges stuff. Like I've banged on about these on the show before, but the Jasper Fjord Thursday Next series of books, which include like the Well of Lost Plots, they're really fun kind of postmodern stories where the characters are all taken from great classical works of literature, like Miss Havisham's there, but she's a mad granny with a speeding car. And they're very funny and they are kind of doing a bit of work to dismantle how snobby and po-faced people can be about literature. And I think that there is something about metatextual literature and intertextual literature that does lead one into the trap of being a bit pompous about it, don't you think? I think it can go that way. And so I love writers that undercut that completely, which I think actually Ruth Ezeki does so brilliantly in her book as well. Yeah, no, it's true. There is a kind of pompousness about it. I also really love reading books about books and maybe did, speaking of pretentiousness, maybe did even more when I was younger and a student. And I think if you're somebody who loves books and reading books and ideas and you get to college and you read like Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern or The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, it blows your little mind. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. But maybe the cleverness of that kind of writing has less of a draw for me now. It maybe doesn't seem as revolutionary and there is a slight self-seriousness to a lot of that kind of writing, even though I still love it. But I, I do still love reading novels that explore books and whether it's authors as characters or thinking about the act of writing in novels. And in fact, maybe that's the next question is what different ways can books manifest in books and and what do those particular ways of doing things what does that open up to the writer well yeah characters who are authors obviously immediately you're in the territory of either thinking about the process of writing or it gives the author of the book the chance to bring in snippets of the text that their character is writing so that's kind of a great a really great technique i mean recently I read Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death by Selena Gordon, which is about a poet who writes the memoirs of death. And it's fantastic and so creative and exciting and about very much about 
what it means to have ideas and tell stories and also the character, the figure of the poet in society and what we expect poets to be. And we expect them to be liminal people who go to the dark places for us and what kind of a toll does that actually take on a person and it's really creative and and exciting and I was also thinking about the Department of Speculation by Jenny Offill which is about a writer and also her next book Weather which is about a librarian (laughs) and again we're given another a different way in right another opportunity to think about the different ways that books cross our paths as people in the world or as readers yeah the characters who are authors things are also it also seems kind of convenient sometimes because it's like oh write what you know <laughs> no but it's a, it's a wonderful way to reflect and and speaking of books that don't take themselves as seriously I loved um less by Andrew Sean Greer I don't know if you read that but it's no. about a, a writer who's sort of devastated because his ex-boyfriend is getting married and so he accepts every single invitation he's had to a writer's festival all over the world and spends a year kind of traveling around the world and getting into mishaps. And it's about love and heartbreak and being a writer. And it's lovely, full of heart, but also very funny. That sounds really yeah, it's fun. really fun. I'd recommend mm. it. But you're right, the kind of library and bookshops as settings is also another way that authors can explore books. So of course there's a library in the Book of Form and Emptiness. That's a big part of the book. And there are other books at Mr. Penumbria's 24-hour bookstore, The Shadow of the Wind, The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco is set in a monastery that's kind of a big library as well. Yeah, don't forget Matilda as well by yes, Roald Dahl. Of course, of course. The Strange Library by Haruki Murakami. Also, I mean Borges wrote famously about a library that was kind of bigger than the universe. Yeah, and and those settings also give authors the chance to put texts within texts, which is something that that Ruth Ezeki was talking about too, the kind of pleasure of that, right? Of mm. of encountering texts within other texts and the ways that texts within texts can give you a different rhythm and the way that texts can reflect each other within a novel, I think is always really exciting. I mean, I I've talked about it a lot on the show before, but I think Possession by A.S. Baia is a great example of that, where it's a kind of literary mystery, but then we, we're exposed to text itself, and the, and the text is is both a kind of object, but also text. And that's what's so unique about books, isn't it? Which, again, is something that comes up in the Book of Form and Emptiness, is, is books are both objects, but they have voices within them. They have text. They say something different from just a, an object. I just want to hear you say the word text again. Yes. <laughs> Why did I say text like 10 billion times? That's all I want to hear. But listen, text I want to ask you, what about nonfiction books about books? Do you have any favorites? Because that's a whole other way of writing about books. And I have to say, as somebody who spent a long time in university, I've read so many books about books <laughs> in the nonfiction category, because essentially, if you do further education, that's a large part of what you end up doing. And I wanted to know how you feel about that. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this. And as someone who works with a lot of nonfiction, I know there's definitely a market for books about books. Although I think sometimes the publishing industry slightly overestimates the market for this because we all are book readers and book lovers. But I don't read that many nonfiction books specifically about books. I do love reading essays and criticism about books and literary culture, as we've discussed before. I'm getting more into literary biographies. Mm, Love it. As I get older, and I'd really like to read more. I'd really like to read that Angela Carter biography that came out recently. 
mm. for instance. I guess I'm not as interested in the more straightforward books about reading or the culture of books. I mean, I think there's a way that the book about a book kind of deadens itself a bit because it's too self-reflexive, I suppose. But there are a couple recently published that I do want to read that I will make an exception for, which is the library book by Susan Orlean. I just, I love her writing and this is a reflection on libraries and it sounds wonderful. And then this book, I don't know if you've heard of it, Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts by Christopher de Hamel, which is, seems like a very, very delightful book about rare manuscripts and what they are and how they work and by an academic who has spent his whole life with manuscripts, which I've always been fascinated by. But how about you? Well, my, I mean, my favorite, probably my favorite nonfiction book about books is two volumes of Deleuze and Guattari's Capitalism and Schizophrenia, (laughs) which are works of critical theory about many things. They're about ideas and concepts and also just kind of mind-bending use of language and ways of living and ways of thinking. But they're also very much about the books of ideas that have shaped how certain generations think about the world, especially Freud. They're called Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateau, and they've been translated. I can't remember actually the name of the translator, but Brian Masumi writes brilliantly about them. So not only do you read Deleuze and Guattari writing about books, but then you can also read Brian Masumi writing about Deleuze and Guattari writing about books. So you can get incredibly meta if you want. But I find them so energizing and exciting as writers. And yeah, they're books that I go back to often. But I also, talking of literary biographies, loved Chris Krause's biography of Kathy Acker, which is called After Kathy Acker, a biography. And it's in itself extremely meta because Kathy herself was a notorious literary pirate, basically, whose body of work was essentially an exercise in the creative potential of unabashed plagiarism. (laughs) And that in her style really interrogates the way that we internalize and metabolize stories and texts. But Chris's biography of Acker also ends up being memoir of herself as well and how she relates to the figure of Akka and and to Akka's texts. And I love the way that those things meld together. I think it's a great read, but it speaks really well to the way that you can write a book about another book without it just being a book about a book. And that's kind of what I'm looking for in this this genre. Yeah, because do you think that books are good mediums to explore their own medium? Yeah, I think they're fantastic at it, but I think also some people do it really badly. (laughs) (laughs) When they're doing it badly, what do you think they do? Well, the ones that hold absolutely zero interest for me whatsoever are the books that are like, these 10 books saved my life. Or I spent a year reading and I read a hundred books. Thank you. I want a prize. Like I just, those I can't be doing with. I just, they don't interest me at all, but I know they have a big market. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't love them either they end up being these parables about the power of reading and the power of stories when they're oh, basically God, when they're too schmaltzy and people are changed by books. I just can't stand that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you, man. <laughs> but I mean, like that's the wonderful thing about books, isn't it? There's such dense means of storytelling or, or even information giving. There's so much you can do in them. And I think that's why they can hold so much. They can hold so much intertextuality within themselves. Yeah. So what is your recommendation of a book about a book? Mine's a bit of a humdinger because it's by Umberto Eco, who is one of the kings of intertextuality. He is. 
It's called The Mysterious Flame of Queen Loana. And I mentioned it on the show quite a while ago, and this is actually the perfect place to bring it back into people's minds. So the English translation is by Jeffrey Brock, and it's an illustrated novel. So in itself, it's just a gorgeous object. But the story is about an antiquarian bookseller who has a stroke when he's 59 and loses his memory. And he remembers nothing about himself. He doesn't remember his own name. He can't remember his wife. Everything's gone. The only thing he's left with is everything he's ever read. (laughs) And the story is basically about him navigating, reconstructing his life and how he can rediscover his memories through the things he's read and through other things as well and his other senses. But really the final section is this kind of, I found it anyway, very wonderful, poignant exploration within literature of what it might mean to have your life flash before your eyes. And I, the thing I love the most about Echo is that he's so not snobby. So the references are some of them to very highly considered literature, but they're also, there's a lot of pop culture in there, like the Flash Gordon comics and things like that. And he never takes himself too seriously. So it's very fun. It's clever. It's stylish. Maybe the characters are a little thinly drawn sometimes, but that's kind of not the point of the novel. So I, do, I didn't mind that. Mm. What about you? Mine is a novel called Writers and Lovers by Lily King, which is not intertextual, really. It was published last year. It's a very charming novel about an aspiring young writer named Casey who's living in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the 90s. She's working as a waitress to make ends meet. And essentially, the story becomes a love triangle with Casey, a very famous recently widowed writer, and a younger, much less established and possibly erratic writer who she meets around the same time. And it's just a very well-observed novel about relationships. But also, I think what made me think about it within the context of this theme is that it's really about the act of writing and what it means to be a writer. And it asks what Casey has to sacrifice to be a writer and what she might have to sacrifice to be in a relationship with other writers and, and how much of herself she can hold. It's not Umberto Eco, but I just, I really enjoyed it. It's a great novel. And, um, and I think it's an, it's a novel that thinks very unpretentiously about writing and the art of writing. I think you also love novels that are set in Massachusetts. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> that sounds like uh, such a carry book. A I little just, slice it takes of so home. many boxes. Yeah. yeah. Plitt back here with Octavia Bright and our guest Ruth Azeki to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? I'd love to. So I am recommending a nonfiction book called The Red Parts, Autobiography of a Trial by Maggie Nelson, which is one of her earlier books. It was actually first published in 2007. And I've been wanting to read it for absolutely years and finally got round to it. And oh my God, I devoured this book. I can't tell you. I basically, if I could have read it in one sitting, I would have done. Unfortunately, I had to go to work, but (laughs) it's about the death of her aunt, Jane Mixer, who was very tragically, brutally murdered in 1969 before Maggie was born. But 
there's a trial that takes place 35 years after Jane's murder. And this book is a kind of dissection of the experience that Maggie and her mother and other members of their family have going through this experience of this trial, which is months long and involves all the kind of characters that you might expect to pop up in the sorts of crime stories that we're used to seeing or being presented with by the culture. So you have the obsessive cop, you have the devastated parent, you have the wife of the murderer, all of this. But she puts it together in what becomes this extremely powerful account of the justice system. And because it's Maggie Nelson and she's an interrogative thinker, she's like calling you in rather than calling you out, but she's calling you into questions about what it means to serve justice and what are the moral implications of things like the death penalty And what about the moral implications of true crime writing and the kind of memoir where you write about other people and also our general prurience about murder and especially when the victim is female and the inequality inherent in whose stories get told, especially murder stories, right? Like what makes a good victim, what makes a bad victim, undoubtedly always to do with race and class and the conduct of a person while they were alive, especially women. So it's it's not a long book, but it attacks so much stuff. And it feels like having read her later books as well, really the very strong establishing of this voice that she becomes such a master of, where I find it very generous in what she gives of herself to the reader, but it's also always analytical and fiercely independent, which is the thing I think I respect her the most for, just the independence of her approach. And it's left me thinking a lot about the meaning of truth and family and when it's good to tell the truth and when it's not and all these things. So yeah, I'm, it's a book I know I'm going to read again because I I want to think about it and then go back to it. And I love, that's always a feeling I love when I finish reading something. Great. Ruth, would you like to give your recommendation? Sure. Well, I really debated about this, but um, I'm going to recommend a book that I have been recommending a lot recently. It's uh, a book by Jorge Luis Borges called The Aleph and Other Stories. And (laughs) (laughs) I love this book. Do you love this book? I love this book so much. I do. And of course, it's a little bit self-serving that I'm recommending it because it's a book that I make reference to in the book of form and emptiness. Um, It's one of the, the sort of books within the book. And I felt that that was appropriate because Borges is, you know, I mean, this is one of his trademarks is this kind of recursive metafiction. He writes so beautifully about books within books and infinite libraries and these kinds of stories that regress through time. In that sense, he was kind of one of the early postmodernists, I think, and also was really sort of I don't know. He he did magic realism, I suppose you would call it, even though it's not quite what I would call magic realism, but um, something like that. And I've always found that inspiring, his kind of fantastical worlds, his, his magical worlds. But it's just a funny, wonderful story. And all the stories in, in the book are wonderful. And in the, I think it's in the Penguin edition, there's a, a really lovely essay. It's only a couple pages called Borges and I. And it's Borges talking about his kind of public persona, as the other Borges, and he sort of splits himself into two. And it's, again, just there's a kind of self-referentiality to that that I feel has influenced me and inspired me in so many ways. 
So that's my recommendation. It's a great recommendation. I And I do love that you recommended a book that was in your book. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, your, your book made me want to read that book. So yeah. it's great to hear you talk about it in that way as well. Good, good, good. So my recommendation is a novel called Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which I actually listened to the audiobook of. Octavia, you'll be happy about this. I'm, I'm so I'm, proud of I'm, you. I'm so into Moving audiobooks into this now. World. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a strange, very short, completely engrossing story that was completely different from how I thought it would be. Essentially, it's a, it's a story of a man named Piranesi who lives in this giant house, which is a kind of almost infinite number of halls that are filled with statues, and they often get flooded by the tides of the sea at different times of days. This is the only world he knows, and the only other person he knows to be alive is someone he calls the other who visits once in a while and making notes on his shining device and kind of saying strange things that Piranesi doesn't understand. And he loves living in this house. He knows all its halls. He kind of understands its natural rhythms. He keeps very detailed notes and knows when all the tides are going to come and marks time by when an albatross has visited him in the hall. But strange things begin to happen and he begins to question what this world really is and who he himself is. So there's a kind of mystery there, but there's also just this beguiling, strange world that Susanna Clark has created that was really different to anything I've read in a long time. And the writing is so grounded and elegant that it makes this world believable and something that you want to explore alongside Piranesi. And I never felt lost in the maze, basically. So it's also just a beautiful study on solitude and thinking about who we are and how we live and why we live. And I loved it. And I loved hearing it read by Chiwetel Ejiofor, who conveys the wonder and the mystery of Piranesi's voice perfectly. So yes, would really recommend. It also just won the Women's Prize. So I guess a lot of other people recommend it as well, but (laughs) I'll add my endorsement. (laughs) Oh, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait to read it. It's really great. And, And I didn't expect it to be what it was. It also sounds like Borges would really approve of that book. It does. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. (laughs) He totally would. Yes. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Ruth Azeki, to Daphne Carnesis for editing, and to Eddie Knight for music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you listen and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram where we are hilarious. You can also get in touch with us on email, lipfriction at gmail.com. So it's very sarcastic. Basically, I'm very inactive at the moment on the socials, but we are there. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.